Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Dear friends, let's love each other because love is from God. And every person who loves is born from God and knows God. The person who doesn't love does not know God because God is love. This is how the love of God is revealed to us. God sent his only son into the world that we can live through him. This is love. It is not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the sacrifice that deals with our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God remains in us, and his love is made perfect in us. This is how we know we remain in him, and he remains in us, because he has given us a measure of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If any of us confess that Jesus is God's Son, God remains in us, and we remain in God. We have known and have believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who remain in him remain in God, and God remains in them. This is how love has been perfected in us, that we can have confidence on Judgment Day, because we are exactly the same as God is in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear expects punishment. The person who is afraid has not been made perfect in love. We love because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates a brother or sister, he is a liar. Because the person who doesn't love a brother or sister who can be seen can't love God who can't be seen. This commandment we have from him, those who claim to love God ought to love their brother and sister also. This is the word of the Lord. Children, you are dismissed to King's Quest. My name's Daniel Long. I'm a pastor here at Grace, and I'm going to be preaching this morning. Uh, And before that, I'd like to pray and ask that that God would speak to us through his word. Uh, And sometimes uh, what this means isn't so much like through the things that I'm going to say, uh, but maybe it's through the scripture that was just read, some of the songs that we've already been singing, the prayer that Esther prayed. There's the conversations that you might have later. There's so many opportunities for God to, I think, just invite himself into our lives, to invite us into his And I want to pray that that this would be one of those, that as we look and consider the Word of God, that we might hear His voice in a fresh way um, and really receive it uh, so so that we might be transformed by it. So let's pray together. God, you are, you are good to us. You are faithful to us. You, you do speak. You do want us to hear you, and to receive from you. So I ask that this morning that you would help us to do just that, that you would 
that you would calm our minds so that we might hear you, that you would calm our hearts and our anxieties so that we might receive from you all the various ways in which you want to work, you want to speak, you want um, to really touch down in our lives. Help us to be receptive. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been, we've been going through a series over the last few weeks. Is there some feedback? Is that me? It's me? You're fixing it? Okay, I didn't know if I was doing something wrong. My voice doesn't do that normally. Um, but So we've been going through a series called Becoming, and the idea of this series is that we, we want God to work in our lives in a way that we are becoming the type of people that he would want us to be. That even before doing the things that God might have us do, that it's actually that God wants to work in us to form us into a certain type of people. And so there's some qualities that we've been, that we've been kind of going through and we will go through. Um, and those four are humility, trust, hope, and joy. That as we kind of think about, as we explore, as we pray through, as God forms these different characteristics in our lives, that we might be people then who are ready, able, and willing to do what God is asking of us to do. But that, that these are four sort of important significant qualities that God wants to instill within us. Um, and it really affects the way not only that we interact with him, there's a vertical dimension to each of these qualities, but there's also this horizontal dimension, that it actually affects the way that we treat one another. That our humility, our trust, our hope, and our joy is not just concerned with our relationship to God, but really my relationship to you, yours to me, and then to us as a church, to one another. So we're on the second week of trust this morning, talking about that horizontal dimension. So what does it mean, or how might our trust in God actually affect and influence the way that we interact? And as we go into that, here's where I'd like to start. Mother Teresa. Now, Mother Teresa is this Catholic saint who really went to the poor in Calcutta and spent her, her life with those who were in extreme poverty and ostracized um, from the world around them. But there's this other man named John Cavanaugh who is this famous ethicist, and he wanted to go to Mother Teresa to, to really make this pilgrimage, to get some sense of who she is and how that might then mark his life. And so he took this pilgrimage, and he, he went to Mother Teresa, and he wanted her to pray for him. And so in this exchange, he says this. He says, well, she asked him, what do you want me to pray for? He said, I'd like for you to pray for clarity, that I would have clarity. Mother Teresa said, no, <laughs> I won't do that. And he asked her, why? Why won't you pray for clarity? And she said, clarity is the last thing you are clinging to, and you must let go of. So this man was confused, but he said, Mother Teresa, it seems like you have extreme clarity. I mean, your whole, you've given up what so many of people's lives would look like in order to do this. I mean, you must have clarity. And she says, I've never had clarity. What I've always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. Mother Teresa, who's given up her, who gave up her entire life to do this thing, you would think that she was absolutely clear that what she was doing mattered and it's what she should be doing. 
This suggests that she never had clarity. She simply had to trust God. And this is extremely interesting because 10 years ago, there were some letters that came out that, that Mother Teresa had written to this spiritual confidant, really confessing her doubt in her life, her doubt in God's love, her doubt in what, that whatever she was doing actually had any sort of, of purpose at all. I mean, this is Mother Teresa. She said this in one of these conversations, in one of these letters, and she's speaking to this man. Jesus has a very special love for you, she said, but as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and I do not see, I listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer, but it does not speak. And I want you to pray for me that I would let him, God, have a free hand in my life. I mean, this is an incredible amount of, of, of absolute trust. Somebody who you would think would have absolute trust is actually confessing her doubt and her need for God to instill within her a trust in who he is and what he's doing. Now, I wonder how long you've been a Christian, how long you've been on this journey of faith in Jesus, and I wonder if you are constantly within having that tension of, of trust and doubt of my life with God meaning the world versus my life with God, I'm not sure what to do, do with it or if it matters at all. It seems to me like that is a tension of the Christian life that we will be in if you are a follower of Jesus all the time. And that a desire is to have this clarity, this certainty, this complete and utter thing that, that says, no, what you are doing and who you are, yes, it's settled and it's neat. But if you had that, would you actually need to trust in God? And I wonder if it's this certainty, this settledness and this desire for it, if it doesn't get in the way in our interactions with one another. So if you can turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, it's on page 1023, um, and there are some Bibles underneath your seat. And so we're going to talk about this idea of trust really in God's love and it working itself out in our love for one another. I don't know if you noticed, but this passage that was read is so repetitive. You're like, I get it. All right, love, love, love. Um, How many times do you need to say it? But it's, the writer is so intent on, on wanting us to see this connection between trust and the love of God and it actually working itself in our love for one another. And so I kind of want to just highlight some of these things in this text and then make some, some remarks at the end. So he starts with, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. This is verse 7. And whoever loves, God has been, or whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he had loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. So what is the way by which we can actually be sure 
that we've experienced the love of God and that we trust in the love of God, in the way that we love each other, that you cannot actually un, like disentangle these two things. How I love you, how you love me, how we love each other actually tells us something about whether or not we know, understand, trust the love that God has for us. They are absolutely connected. I can't say I love God and then be a jerk. They don't connect. I will know if I love God, if I trust in God's love for me, in how I treat people around me. I mean, this is something that Jesus himself said in John 13, right? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. This is how you know if you are connected to Jesus, is in your love for one another. Now, in the second hour fellowship last week, Steve Porter, um, he, he sort of took us through all these different scriptures, these one another um, passages in scriptures, over like 60 of them. That the New Testament is not worried about being repetitive or teaching the same sermon over and over and over again. Because for some reason, it is our love for one another that actually puts flesh on what it is we say we think and we believe and we trust. That they are absolutely central and they are absolutely connected. You will know if you love God if you love one another. You will know whether or not you trust in God's love for you and how you love the person around you. And so my question is, is love the thing, our love for each other, our kindness toward one another, is it the thing that people who aren't a part of the church, or maybe who are or who are in it, is it the thing that, that we're known for? Is our love for one another the thing that people know the church for. I'm taking a class at Cal State and I will tell you, no. That is not the thing that people know about Christianity. And I think that, that it's, yeah, that, that there's this sense in which there's a very um, limited point of view and a complete caricature of Christianity, absolutely, that at least I'm hearing. But for some reason, love never becomes part of the calculus in terms of how they're understanding the church. And to me, that seems like a real massive problem. If that's the thing that, that, that we are to be people defined by, because it is God's love that first defines us. And see, that I think is an absolute essential turning point of the scriptures and of the text, that we are, we are first defined by God's love for us. That is what makes the church, the people of God, unique, is that we have experienced and tasted the love of God, and we are people who trust in that love. Let's go into to verse 13. What first defines us is what's true of us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is so also are we in this world. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See, right here in this text, there's this constant reiteration of what's true of the people of God. That we are people who are loved by God. Not because we have first loved God, but because he has first loved us. Through his son Jesus come to us. It's, that is what defines us. That is what is to be the marker by which we live and understand our world and our reality and the people around us. But here's the thing. We live in a culture in which is not defined by love. I would argue that it's defined mostly by fear. That we live in a culture defined by fear. And Will spoke so well about this last week. And I want to hit the point home because I can't tell you if you were to turn on the news, NPR, any other thing, any news or media outlet that you listen to, fear. That is what is defining us. That is actually the thing that that we can't seem to get out of. And it's really a fear of the other. The other being those who are different from us, who think differently than us, different political views, different theological views, that there's this certain sense of fear that is actually closing us down from actually engaging and interacting with one another in the fact that we are made in the image of God. We've created these tribes and these groups that, that we have defined ourselves not by who we are or what's true of us, but by who we are not. And it's this fear of being like them. Being like those people that I think is actually keeping us from the love of God. That this God's love is, or not keeping us from the love of God, but keeping us from actually being conduits of God's love to others. That is this fear, this sense of of being a tribe based on on my difference from those out there. But you see, the scripture is actually concerned with saying, you know what first defines you? It's not your difference from other people. It's actually what's true of you. It's your identity. If you read any sort of New Testament letter, the first two chapters are constantly, here's what's true. Here's what is is your reality. You were once this way, but you're not this way. And you know why? Because God has come in Jesus, and through the cross and resurrection, your life will never be the same. That's what's true. And because that's true, here's how I want you to live. It's not like, oh, here, you know what? You're, here are all these people. You're so different from them. So here's, here's, go and do this. That is just not the way that the scripture actually wants to form and shape our identity or theological imagination. We are defined first by what is true, by our identity, that God loves us through his son Jesus and has made it possible for us to be connected together as the family of God and that we are then to be people who recognize and understand that love, to be conduits of that love to other people, to one another, and to those outside of this thing we call the church. That is our calling. That is what God has given us to do. And it will only take place and happen if we trust that God has first loved us, if we trust actually that, w- that who we are, are brothers, sisters, sons and daughters loved by the Father. 
Barbara Brown Taylor, a preacher, says this about fear. Fear is a small cell with no air in it and no light. It is suffocating inside and dark. There is no room to turn around inside it. You can only face in one direction, but it hardly matters since you cannot see anyhow. There is no future in the dark. Everything is over. Everything is past. When you are locked up like that, tomorrow is as far away as the moon. Fear being the small cell that is just suffocating the life out of who we are. But love, God's love, trust in God's love is the, is the key that will free us from that fear. There's this book, also a movie called The Road, which I've mentioned before, but I think it, it actually presents an incredible picture of the, the possibilities of love. It's, it's the, 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 the book is about this post-apocalyptic world. You're actually not sure what happened. All you know is that future is completely closed down. There is, there is a complete and utter wasteland of a world. You cannot have enough food. You can't have any, any of these things. And there's this man, and there's this boy, and those are their names. And they are left to wander this world, trying to survive. And the question that the book is asking is will they, or how will they, continue to keep their humanity? Because the world becomes this metaphor of what happens when fear is pervasive, that people become, in the book quite literally, cannibals and begin to consume one another. And you have this man and this boy who are attempting to hold on to who they are, and it is the love between them, and it is actually the future of love that is the boy is a picture of that makes it possible for them to keep going. And so you see this man who is giving his complete and utter self to this boy and it is what keeps him going to the very end until he is able to not live anymore. It is actually the boy who is able to keep this man from just completely consuming others or killing others because there is still the light. That's what it says. The light is still in them. It's this incredible picture of love being the thing that breathes humanity back into the world. Now think about that in terms of the church. If we can be people who trust in God's love for us and conduits of that love, that we then become the breath of God to a dying world. We then become this this renewing breath that restores humanity, that restores a sense of peace, into a world that is so intent on consuming itself, so intent on being anxious and living with this pervading sense of of people are out to get me or I don't want to be like them or what I have is mine, so stay away. That the love of God and trust in that love provides the possibility of a new future, the possibility of a renewed and restored humanity. And not because we in ourselves are wonderful and good and because we can just know how to love, but because God himself first loved us. See, in the people of God in Israel, God was constantly reminding them, don't you remember who you were? He's constantly saying, hey, to be kind to the alien and to the sojourner, not because it's something good to do, but because they themselves were once aliens and sojourners. 
He's going to read some text. Exodus 22, 20, 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 19.34, when a, stranger, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 10.19, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I mean, it's this constant sense of like, don't you remember what was true of you and what I have made different? Well, treat others then differently. Then you go into the New Testament, and this is just one example, Ephesians 1 and 2. Once you were dead in trespasses, separated from Christ, alienated from the story of God, and strangers to the covenant of promise with no hope, but but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this is what was true of you, but this is now what's true of you. Do you trust that that is what's true of you? Because if you do, that will then change the way that you treat people around you, that this vertical understanding of trust in God will have this horizontal ramification in how we treat one another. See, God has, God's love has this trajectory, at least in the story of Scripture, where those who are outside get brought in, right? I mean, those who are aliens and sojourners actually become people who are a people, who have an identity. People who are enemies become neighbors, People who are strangers become friends. There's this incredible sense of the love of God actually bringing those who are out there into it. I mean, it's an incredible picture of God's love. It's so expansive, actually, if you look at the story of Scripture, that if you go into the book of Revelation, there's this amazing picture, this heavenly sort of, this idea, this sense of what's going to happen and take place when God himself is worshipped. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. All tribes, all nations, all languages. That God's love is so expansive that it's bringing together people, all different types of people, that they might then be together in their worship of God. Do we trust that that is God's vision for the world? Is that what shapes our interactions with one another and those outside of these walls, those in the world? And so then what, what then gets in the way of this imagination? What gets in the way of of our ability to love, to trust in God's love, and then to be a conduit of that love to others. So I just want to name a few fears that I think might get in the way. The first fear, I think, is getting it wrong. I think we have this real sense of fear that we, as the body of Christ, that we, as believers, uh, people who follow Jesus, we're so afraid of getting it wrong that we don't actually take the, the risk to then love. 
Getting it wrong how? I don't know. Maybe being, maybe being too lenient. Maybe being not, um, not faithful enough. Not right enough. I don't know what the, what the, how we might fear we're getting it wrong. But I feel this way. I talk with people who feel this way. There's this sense of fear. We don't want to make a wrong move. We don't want to get it wrong. What's the fear connected to getting it wrong? The fear is that we are going to make God angry and that perhaps then he might abandon us or we are going to go off the trail, off the path, and then what? We're afraid of getting it wrong because we're ultimately afraid of God, I think, kind of being angry or discounting us. Well, then what's, what's true? What's the truth that speaks to that fear? Is that God is incredibly patient that's the truth, I think. God is incredibly patient with his people. If you don't think God is patient, read the Bible from beginning to end. You will see a God who is patient with his people. Patient in that it's not that they don't suffer or in, in, endure consequences for their actions. They do. But all the way through it, God is still there with them. Restoring them. The people of Israel. Always. They're wandering. He brings them back. They disobey. They're exiled. God is still there. God brings them back. I mean, God is incredibly patient. So this fear of God's abandonment, I just think, is completely unwarranted in terms of God's character. Ultimately, I think it's connected to this idea of of God waiting for us to just make a mistake. Do you have this sense or this picture of God that he is just kind of waiting? He's just waiting for us as the people of God, as the church, to make a wrong move. We'll make a decision, we'll make a wrong move, and then God will say, yeah, I knew it. Lame. They're lame. See you later. But if you are... If you know good parents, or if you yourself would consider yourself somewhat of a good parent, is that how you interact with your children? That you're kind of just you're waiting for them to make a mistake? So you can just catch them in the act and say, see, you are, you are terrible, you are ridiculous. No, I hope not. <laughs> Because um, we have had a lot of conversations. If you feel like, no, that's totally not. But if, if, but seriously, like, if there's, like, think about that for a minute. Do you have the sense of walking your, or living your life with God that He is just waiting for you to make a mistake? If that's your understanding of God, then I would confess that. And begin to pray and ask others to pray that you would trust in a God who first loved you through his son Jesus. And that God's love for you extends completely and always to the sense that he is with you. That as his disciples, as his followers, that he will not leave us or forsake us. We went on vacation this summer, and there was this moment with my oldest who 
he, he's a good swimmer, and he's actually supposed to, if he was going to swim without a life vest, he was going to have to do this, um, this swim test. And, and the swim test is you have, to, you have to go across the width of the pool twice, and then you have to tread water for, I think it was like 30 seconds. And he was really excited to do it um, and, and super confident that he could do it. And so he went, and he was going to start, and he was just looking at the water, and he just started crying. And I was totally thrown off and confused. And even thinking about my kids crying, I can't help but cry, so sorry. But, um, so I, I, I walked over there, and I, was, I got down with him, and I started to, I, I was like, Asher, what, what's going on? And he's like, I don't want to do it. And I was like, why don't you want to do it? I think you could do it. Um, and he says, well, I don't, want to, I don't want the lifeguard to see how bad I am at treading water. And I was like, man, I totally know how you feel. <laughs> and it was like this, this moment of, of just like, wow, how often do I live life not doing things for fear of perhaps God seeing how bad I do them? And I just wanted to, and as, as much as I could say, like, man, I know you can do it. You know, what he needed was to just know that I just loved him anyway. Um, I wasn't so good of a dad the next day because when I felt like I was forcing him to do something he didn't want to do. But in that moment, I felt like I totally knew <laughs> what he needed. Um, and it was this incredible moment of, of, of I don't know, just the sense of understanding how I can live life sometimes, at least my spiritual life with God, which then affects my life with others, that perhaps I'm afraid to risk in love, in loving those people who, who are a risk to love for fear of getting it wrong, for fear of actually making a misstep, for fear that, that I'm going to do something or um, think away in a way that, that God will then say, yep, see, this whole time I knew it and you just proved that it was true. That is just a weird, distorted sense of God. And it does not come out of this love that is perfect and casts out fear. It does not come out of this love from God that actually breathes life into humanity. That is a sense of God that actually closes one down and makes one extremely fearful and actually keeps us from loving people in the way that we might be called to love them. And I think... And I think that God is calling us as his church to live in this way where we are taking risks in the way that we actually love one another. And I don't know what that risk is for you, but I think that you do. I think you know how you've been held back because you're not believing or trusting in God's love for you. And so I'm curious, what, what fears do you have that are keeping you from actually taking risks in love for other people. Not just in the people here, but people outside of our walls. Is it this fear of, of, of being contaminated? You know, I think that's one of the things that the church is actually afraid of, is of, afraid of, of, being, of, of having this outside presence then contaminate what's going on in here. But I think that's, a, that's not trusting in the love that Jesus shows, which he has the power to actually make things different. He has the power to make things clean. He has the power to, to, to restore health. It's not the outside forces of the leper or the woman who is bleeding or those outside of the faith who contaminate Christ. Christ is actually the one who restores them. 
So the church, we should just let go of this fear of being contaminated and actually trust in the love that God has for us, this love that completely transforms the world around us and get out loving. Because we might then be a force of restoration and renewal, of restoring humanity back to the world by the ways that we risk in our love. My friends, I, I think that God is calling us as a body, as a family, to live in this tension, this tension of, of, of trusting in God's love so much that we then begin to take risks in loving each other and into loving our world. That we aren't defined by the things that, that make us different from them, but we are first defined by what God says is true of us. That we don't live with a sense of fear, but we live with a sense of freedom, not in the cell that, where it's suffocating, but in our humanity being breathed back into us, in the sense of letting go. That is what it means to be a light to the world and the salt of the earth is to be people who have been first loved by God and can then love one another. I just want to end with this incredible prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3. And worship team, you can go ahead and come up. Because Paul, one thing I love about Paul is that he knows you can't just force yourself to believe that God loves you. That's just an impossibility. That we actually need the work of God and the work of the Spirit to help us understand and comprehend the love of God. And so this is a prayer he prays, and it's a prayer that I find myself praying pretty regularly because I'm not, I mean, I, all these things I'm talking about in terms of fear and all that stuff, that's like coming from personal experience. These are things that I, that I understand, that I live with, and I need to be reminded of God's love for me. And I need to be reminded that I can't just believe that God needs to do a work in my life. And so here's the prayer that he prays. And one more thing, what an incredible gift as we talk about trust and God's love affecting the way we love one another, that we get to engage in the coming to the table together. This is, this is God's love. And this is what it means to trust in God's love, is to say, yes, I need this. Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.